Congregation, let's turn again to Lord's Day 12. Lord's Day 12, we'll read the entire Lord's Day and we'll focus on the second question of that Lord's Day. Question 31, why is he called Christ that is anointed? The answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes, us, and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. And also to be our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. Question 32. But why art thou called a Christian? The answer, because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and also that with a free and good conscience, I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. And so we're going to speak about the identity of the true Christian. That's the question. Why art thou called a Christian? First of all, Christians are members of Christ. It says, because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of his anointing. Secondly, Christians confess the name of Christ. Right? So now the, the answer focuses on how those three offices of Christ are reflected in the Christian. Thirdly, Christians are devoted to Christ and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. And, third, and fourthly, Christians are soldiers of Christ. They belong to what we call the militia of Christ, his spiritual army, so that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterward reign with him eternal. So Christians are members of Christ, or we could say they are united to Christ. Secondly, Christians confess the name of Christ. Why? Because they know Christ. Thirdly, Christians are devoted to Christ. Why? Because they love Christ. And fourthly, Christians are soldiers of Christ. It's because their desire is to serve Christ. So, boys and girls, do you remember those three words that I gave you last week? Three important words I want you to remember. Three important words that I will, again, emphasize tonight. Remember, to know, to love, and to serve. Because that's the purpose for which God created us. He created us, as we have seen last week, in his image. And he equipped us with what we need to fulfill the purpose for which he made us. 
And so he created us with knowledge to be able to know the God who made us. He equipped us with righteousness so that we could have an intimate relationship with the God who made us. And he created us in holiness so that we could wholeheartedly live unto the glory of the God who made us. Created to know and to love and to serve our Creator. And again, this will come to the foreground in this evening hour as well. But first of all then, we want to focus on the fact that the true Christian is a member of Christ. As is so often the case, the questions of the Heidelberg Catechism themselves are so very weighty. And we see again that the Catechism always makes the application of truth very, very personal. And so that's a question that I need to consider, a question that you need to consider. Because the label Christian is used very loosely and flippantly almost, especially here in America. So much is labeled as Christians. So many people consider themselves Christians. And so the question that we have to consider, that I have to consider, why am I, why are you called a Christian? And so the question obviously means, is there evidence in your life that you are worthy of being called by that name. Some of our older children may know that the very first time that believers were called Christians was in the city of Antioch. Antioch was the city where the Lord worked so mightily. As a result of persecution, the church migrated towards Antioch. Antioch became the center of the New Testament church. And so what happened? Their enemies, they labeled them as Christians. And why? Because they, so, they spoke so much of Christ. And so it was meant as an insult. But it became for them a badge of honor. Because what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. And we will see what that means also in this evening hour. And so, is my Christianity, is it real? Is it genuine? Does my life demonstrate that there is a real union between me and the Lord Jesus Christ? Does my life demonstrate by its fruits that I am a living member of his church? And it's interesting that in this Lord's Day, even though the focus in these Lord's Days is on the person of Christ, we are considering all of his names, that this Lord's Day also addresses this question. Why? Because our fathers realized that Christ and the Christian are inseparable. The very reason Jesus came into the world to be the Christ is that as a result of his saving work, fallen sons and daughters of Adam 
would become partakers of him and of his anointing. And so the whole ministry of Christ until this very day is to see to it that his people reflect him and are therefore worthy to be called Christians, Christ-like. So why am I called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith. What a beautiful statement it is, congregation. Because that's exactly what defines the true child of God. I've said it here numerous times, but it, can, it should be repeated again. What happens when the Spirit of God regenerates us? When He makes us spiritually alive? What happens? The Spirit of God unites us to Christ. He grafts us into Christ. He cuts us off from Adam and he grafts us into Christ. And to appreciate that, boys and girls, you would have to go to a farm, a nursery farm, where they practice this all the time. It's a very, very amazing process where, where those who are raising these trees have figured out that by cutting branches off from one tree and by literally putting them into another tree, that those branches will become much more fruitful. And it's a very careful process. And sometimes those grafts will fail. But they almost always succeed. And so what happens? When that branch is cut off from this tree, and so now it's disconnected from this tree, and then that branch, then what they, what they do is they, they, they slice open the stem, and they literally slide that branch in there, and then they wrap something around it. And then if the graft takes, amazing thing happens. That branch that drew all of its life from that tree now draws all of its life from this tree. A congregation, that's exactly what happens in regeneration. And the Holy Spirit works and gives us a new heart when he makes us a new creature. Because by nature, we are all connected to Adam. That's by nature we live dead in sins and trespasses. But when the Spirit of God gets a hold of us, He cuts us off from Adam and He grafts us into Christ. And when that happens, and those grafts never fail, they are always successful. When that happens from that moment... We begin to draw our life from the Lord Jesus Christ. We become a living soul. Paul writes of this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, there we have it, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's why in John 15, Jesus uses the example of the vine. There were many vines in Israel. And he says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. And again, the example is very simple. 
It's those branches, because they are united to the vine. Those branches are fruitful. They bring forth fruit. And every season, the vine keeper will go through his vineyard to examine the vines, to see if there are any dead branches. Boys and girls, you can figure that out. How would he know? How would he know that the branch is dead? Because it's lifeless. There is no fruit on it. That means it's dead. But a living branch will be a fruitful branch. It will produce grapes. And that describes the wonderful union that exists between Christ and his church. And so what happens? We become a partaker of his anointing. And so what unites Christ and his people, what unites them is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who dwells in Christ also dwells in his people. And that Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And his work it is to glorify Christ. That's why true spiritual life will always be Christ-centered. For when we are united to Christ, our spiritual life will be directed to Christ. The life that flows from Christ is attracted to Christ. That's why love for Christ is the ultimate evidence of grace. That's why the Lord Jesus asked Peter that question. When Peter had absolutely nothing to show for, except that he had utterly failed his master. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. And that he could not deny. He could not deny that he loved Christ. And that's why congregation. Anyone who speaks of spiritual life without speaking of Christ, that's not the real thing. True spiritual life flows out of Christ and is attracted to Christ. That's why it is faith in Christ, as I've said before, which is the only reliable evidence of regeneration. That's the goal of the Holy Spirit. The goal of the Spirit of Christ is to glorify Christ. And he glorifies Christ by saving sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins. He brings glory to Christ by taking rebellious sons and daughters of Adam and grafting them into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the very nature of that life is that our soul will be irresistibly attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's the confession of every true believer. Oh, give me this Jesus, or else I die. And so the Spirit's indwelling ministry produces an intimate and experiential union between Christ and the Christian. An intimate and experiential union between Christ and the Christian. So I ask you, 
Boys and girls, I ask you too. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your heart attracted to him? Has the Lord Jesus Christ become precious to your soul? Because if that's not the case, that means you're still spiritually dead. And that's why the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 are so solemn when he says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Those are solemn words. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I'm asking you, boys and girls, I'm asking you too. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it evident in your life that you are united to him? Is it evident in your life that that relationship is real? Because congregation, you see, and that's the point here too is when we are united to Christ, His ministry in us will manifest itself. And so, union to Christ will always produce likeness to Christ. That's why the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Even their enemies, they could tell that these people, they were preoccupied with Christ. They spoke of him. They resembled him. And so they labeled them Christians. Oh, that union in Christ will produce an active abiding in Christ. As you know, that's the point Jesus makes in John 15. And the reason he encourages believers to abide in him is because there is already a living connection between him and them. And so he's saying to his disciples and to us, precisely because I am the vine and you are the branches, precisely because you are united to me, therefore also abide in me so that you may bear much fruit. That's really the point Jesus makes in John 15. That's so encouraging. He's saying to his people, if I may say it reverently, take full advantage of that union. In me is everything to be found that you need, all that you need for your spiritual life, all that you need to prosper spiritually. It's all to be found in me. And therefore abide in me. And I in you. And the more you will abide in me, the more fruit you will bear. That's why the words of John 1 verse 16 are so beautiful. When he says, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. And that expression, grace for grace, literally means one grace tumbling over another grace. In other words, that in Christ, Christ is an overflowing fountain of grace, an overflowing fountain of mercy. In Him, there is an inexhaustible fullness that cannot be exhausted. Out of His fullness have we received grace for grace. And so what does that mean? What does that look like to be a partaker of His anointing? What does that look like to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ? 
Well, that will manifest itself in three ways, the Catechism says. First of all, that I confess His name. What does the word confess mean? Confess literally means to say the same thing. So to confess His name means that we fully embrace what the Bible reveals to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess His name means that I say amen to who He is. To confess His name is the fruit of the fact that when the Spirit unites us to Christ, we begin to know Him. And the more we know of Him, the more we will confess Him. The more we know of Him, the more precious He will become to us. The more we know of Him, the more we will join the confession of the bride in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. When those daughters of Jerusalem, and they said to Him, what is your loved one? What, what is He more than any other. And then the bride, who because of her slothfulness had not risen from her bed, and who desperately wanted to find her bridegroom, then she could not be silent. And her mouth begins to overflow. And she begins to describe her bridegroom. And finally, finally, she runs out of adjectives. And finally she says... This bridegroom of mine, he is white and he is ruddy and he is altogether lovely. He is the chiefest among 10,000. Can you relate to that congregation? Can you relate to that? That when you read the scriptures, when you search his word, when you come to the house of God, does your heart resonate with what you hear? Does your heart respond to the proclamation of that precious name? It also means that we confess him by being his witness in this world. It means that every Christian is called to be a prophet, the prophetic office of Christ, a prophet. What does that mean again? What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks the word of God. A prophet is a divine spokesman, is a divine ambassador, a proclaimer of the word of God. And so what is our obligation as a Christian? Precisely because we know him, we are called to confess him, not only by saying amen to what God's word reveals of him, but we are to confess him in this fallen world of ours. Oh, Christ has saved us to be his witnesses. You shall be my witnesses, he said. And so each Christian is called to be a witness to his truth. Open your Bibles for a moment to Psalm 68, verse 11, which beautifully illustrates what our calling is as 
a Christian, what our prophetic obligation is. Psalm 68, verse 11. Psalm 68, verse 11. We read there, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. So let's, let's pause there a moment. The Lord gave the word. And so what did they do with that word? They published it. So the very fact that God's word has come to us, the very fact that God has given his word to us, obligates us to proclaim that word to others. God gave the word. Great was the company that published it. And of course, the meaning is so rich because God not only gave the written word, no, he gave the word, the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Congregation, that's why we are called today in 2023 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, here in Comstock, Christ has placed us here to be his witnesses. Christ has placed us here to fulfill our prophetic obligation. He has given us the word not only to instruct us, to edify us, to build us up in our most holy faith, but to be confessors of his name. And of course, thirdly, to confess his name means that we honor him. So when we live a godly life, we have addressed that now several weeks. And so a Christian, a Christian confesses the name of Christ by honoring his word. As I said this morning, a Christian is someone whose desire it is to honor the living word by honoring his written word. So that our life our walk becomes a testimony. 1 John 2, verse 3. And he says, Hereby, this is important, folks, and hereby we do know that we know him. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You can't claim to know him and not honor his word. Christian honors the living word by honoring the written word. So our life, our walk has to be a testimony. Our walk has to be a visible and tangible profession of God's truth in Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2. He says, ye are our epistle written in our hearts known and read of all men. That's quite a statement. And so am I. Are you a readable epistle? Can others who live with you, who work with you, can they see something of the beauty of Christ? Is your life, is my life, is it a living testimony? Are we confessing the name of Christ. And of course what that means to take God's word seriously is that for the true Christian who is committed to God's truth that means there will be zero tolerance for sin. I've made that statement before. 
And again, I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood. I'm not saying that the Christian will not sin. Sadly, we do. And we will, we will sin till our dying day. But for the true Christian who is united to Christ, who loves him, who loves his word, the true Christian has zero tolerance for sin. For the true Christian, the, the, the least minor sin, the least sinful inclination is a burden and a matter of grief. The closer we live to Christ, the more we abide in Him, the more tender we will become. And then even sinful desires, sinful inclinations that no one else knows about except our all-knowing Christ will prompt the Christian to confess it and to seek divine pardon over and over again. And so we confess his name by declaring him to be our only Savior, by being his witness in this world, by honoring his revealed will, honoring his word. That leads to the next point, namely that when I'm a partaker of his anointing, not only will I confess his name, but present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. A living sacrifice. And why? Because Christ gave himself as your priest. He gave himself as a sacrifice to save and redeem your soul. I'm just going to read a number of passages that underscore this overwhelming truth, congregation. Your Christ, your Savior, He gave Himself. He gave Himself to redeem you. He gave Himself to reconcile you with God. Galatians 1 verse 4. Who gave Himself for our sins. Galatians 2 verse 20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5 verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 1 Timothy 2 verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. Titus 2 verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And so, dear Christian, what do you think your obligation is to a Savior who gave himself as a ransom for your soul? Our obligation is to give ourselves to him. He gave himself for us, and we are called to give ourselves to him. And so therefore, when we become partakers of his anointing, that should become manifest in our life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are bought with a price. You are bought with the price of his precious blood. 
What an obligation of love we have to this Savior to give ourselves as a sacrifice. And so that should work its way out in a life that is devoted to Him. A life in which we give ourselves to Him. A life in which we exercise the priesthood of all believers. And what was the, what, what was the work of the priest? Sacrificing was part of it because of sin. But the priests were the worship leaders in Israel. They were the intercessors who interceded with God. They were the ones who blessed the people of Israel. And so a Christian is called to be a priest, to manifest that anointing of Christ. And so we should be, we should be a people that so live and conduct ourselves that it will, that it will, it will foster a, an, an environment of worship, even in our own families. As priests, we are called to be intercessors, to intercede for our families, for our loved ones, for friends, for anyone else we come in contact with. To be Christ-like means we are to be intercessors. And we are, to, we are to be a blessing to those with whom we live. Our whole life must be actually an act of worship. That's the calling of the Christian. That's the point, of course, we, Paul makes in Romans 12, verse 1, we read it together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Or you could say, which is your reasonable worship. And so the logic is very simple, and yet so profound. Christian, consider what Christ did for you. Focus on what he did for you, and that should motivate you to give yourself to him, to surrender your life to him as a living sacrifice. And that often means for the Christian a life of self-denial. Even what happened in Genesis 22, we see a beautiful example of Abraham, the father of the faithful, who loved God so much, who loved Christ so much, that he was willing to sacrifice his own son, even though it seemed so impossible. God said to him, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him here for a burnt offering. What a test of faith that was for Abraham. But he loved Christ so much that even though he didn't understand it, he was ready to sacrifice his own son. Mark 16, verse 24, Christ says, in Matthew 16, 24, rather, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 10, 37, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Matthew 19, 29, And everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. That's what kept Paul going. Paul, who endured everything for the sake of Christ, who endured unspeakable hardship, who endured persecution, who was nearly stoned to death because his desire was to give his life as a living sacrifice to him. And so I ask myself and I ask you, congregation, is that your desire as well? Is it your desire to honor this Christ who has saved and redeemed you? Is it your desire that your life would be at his disposal? That you would give yourself as a living sacrifice? So we have seen that when we are partakers of Christ's anointing, we will confess the Christ we know. We will be devoted to the Christ we love. And thirdly, or lastly, we will strive for the Christ whom we deserve to serve. We will serve as a willing soldier in his militia. That's what the Christian is called to. And also it says here that with a free and good conscience, I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. And so what is the calling of a follower of Christ? Not only to be a living sacrifice, but we are called to be engaged in that relentless warfare against a three-headed enemy. Because when we are Christians in this world, we are Christians in enemy territory. And we face a daunting enemy, a three-headed enemy. And they all work together, they all conspire together against Christ, against His anointed people, against the Christian. A warfare that is intense, a warfare that is relentless. So Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, Thou therefore, he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And what a battle it is. How intense that warfare can be against Satan, the arch enemy of Christ. Satan and all of his minions his multitude of demons who do his bidding. Oh, how Satan is always after the people of God. How he will try to trip us up. How he will try to tempt us to sin. How he will dangle the bait of sin in front of us. Sin that is still so attractive to our flesh. Oh, the devil knows. He knows that he has the cooperation of our sinful flesh. He knows there is a traitor within that will cooperate with him. 
our flesh, and then the world, of course. The world, the domain of Satan. A world that also conspires against us. A world that, as we will say, we're seeing in our own country, unimaginable. A world that is becoming more and more brazen in this hostility against those who profess the name of Christ. And those three, they work together. Because the flesh of the Christian congregation, the flesh of the Christian is flesh. The old nature of the Christian is as depraved as the nature of an ungodly man. That flesh of ours, that old nature, continues to be so attracted to sin. And the devil knows that. He tries to trip us up. He tries to make us fall into sin. He tries to draw us away from Christ. He knows very well that ultimately he cannot rob us of our salvation, but he can rob us of the joy of our salvation. And he knows when he trips us up into sin, when he shuts us down spiritually, that we will no longer bear fruit. It's his goal. He hates fruitful Christians. He hates Christians who are abiding in Christ. And that's why Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking to the captain of the host, our king. We must be engaged in that warfare. That's why we have Ephesians 6. That's why the Apostle Paul spells out that amazing spiritual armor. A passage that we need to focus on. A passage we need to meditate upon. I may have told you here before, but I once met an old godly woman. And I never forget what she said to me. She said, every morning, every morning by faith, I put on that armor piece by piece to face a new day. And that armor is there. That armor is available. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And again, our union with Christ gives us the resources we need to engage in that battle. Which is why he says, abide in me. Do not wander away from me. Abide in me. Stay with me. Walk with me. And that will equip us to engage in that warfare. To do so, it says here, that with a free and good conscience, I may fight against sin and Satan in this life. And that's the whole point, you see. is when we yield to sin, when we yield to temptation, we become compromised. When we become compromised, we become weak. When we become weak, we cannot engage in that warfare. And that's why the best remedy, and it sounds so simple, and yet it's so profound, is to abide in Christ. That's the safest place there is. To stay near to Him, to feed upon His Word, to commune with Him daily. And that's why, congregation, as I will often say whenever I have the opportunity to have time alone with Christ every day 
is not an option. It's a necessity. It's an absolute necessity. You must make time to be alone with him. You must make time to feed upon his word. You must abide in him. Because he will abide in us. And so Paul writes to 1 Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And so what is the duty? What is the duty of Christ's soldier? That's the point here. The duty of Christ's soldier is to we have to remain fit for battle. We have to remain fit for battle. And the only way we remain fit for battle is by staying near to the Savior, near to our King, walking with Him, abiding in Him, living in fellowship and communion with Him. That's why Paul writes these remarkable words in Acts 24, verse 16, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. So Paul is saying, I go out of my way to examine myself. I go out of my way to exercise myself to make sure I have a, a conscience void of offense before God. And that's what John invites us to do, does he not? In 1 John 2. If any man sin, and we do. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so the moment we sin, we can turn to him. The moment we sin we can again take refuge to him, which is also what the devil wants to avoid. See, the devil, want, when, when we sin, he lies to us. When we sin, he says, you are just a phony. You, you did this. You said this. You thought this. And you think you're a Christian. And somehow he lies to us to deceive us that we cannot immediately take refuge to Christ. What exactly what John says. If you sin, when you sin, turn at once to your advocate in heaven. As Baxter said, and the Puritans repeated it after him, for every look we take at ourselves, we have to take ten looks to Christ. So what is the future for Christ's soldiers? It says, and afterwards reign with him eternally. Over all creatures. Oh, that's the blessed future that awaits the true Christian. To be with him forever. Because what's so delightful for the true Christian is to know that this Christ will always be your Christ. He will be your Christ forever. He will forever be your prophet. He will forever be your priest. He will forever be your king. And so my question is, are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? Am I a true Christian? Is there reliable evidence in my life that I'm united to him. Has this Christ become the focal point of my life? Do we understand the yearning of Paul 
a man who knew so much of Christ, a man who had been drawn up into the third heaven where he saw things that could not be uttered. What was his yearning? Oh, that I might know him, that I might know him, that I might know more of him and his power and his grace. Ah, you see, for a true Christian, he never gets enough of Christ. He longs to know ever more of him. And that's why only a true Christian will be at hope, will feel at home in heaven. Because there they will be with a Christ whom we already know in this life. There we will engage fully in what begins already here. And Christ longs for that day. He's praying at his Father's right hand, Father, I pray that those whom thou hast given me, that they may be where I am that they may behold my glory. Why art thou called a Christian? May it not be true what Paul writes in Titus 1 verse 16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Therefore, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Because union to Christ will manifest itself in likeness to Christ. Amen. Our faithful God and Father, we humbly bow before Thee to give Thee thanks for what Thou hast granted today. Also in this evening hour, as we could focus on that amazing relationship between Christ and His people who are partakers of his anointing. And Lord, we pray that that will be evident in our lives, that as we enter a new week, that we, by grace, will confess his name, that we will give ourselves as a living sacrifice to him, that we manfully fight against that three-headed enemy looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And so may the fruits of our life demonstrate that we know Christ, that we love Christ, and that we desire to serve Christ. Forgive all that was sinful of this day and gather with us again this coming Lord's Day. Bless us in this coming week. Bless the labor of our hands. Bless our children in school. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.